Welcome back to the Voting While Black podcast. In case you're just joining us, we're talking with the candidates running for president in 2020, getting real about what they think about race and exactly how they would help the movement for racial justice. If you haven't heard our previous episodes, be sure to check them out after this one. I'm Rashad Robinson from Voting While Black, the nation's largest black-led volunteer-driven voter mobilization program, a project of Color of Change PAC. Our guest today is presidential candidate Andrew Yang. Mr. Yang is a former tech executive and has held no prior public office, but he has been an outspoken advocate about one signature issue on the campaign trail, universal basic income, which Dr. Martin Luther King talked about extensively in the final years of his life. During this episode, Mr. Yang shared his thoughts about how universal basic income will help the fight for racial justice. Here's what he had to say. Welcome, Mr. Yang. Um, I'm so glad that you're here with us to talk about racial justice, uh, not just about what you think uh, we need to achieve, but how you think we're going to get there and the role you see yourself in making that change possible. When it comes to any social change, I talk a lot about knowing the difference between presence and power. And what I mean is issues that black people care about, issues that affect black people, um, are talked about everywhere, online, on the front pages of the newspaper, even on the debate stage. But that doesn't mean that anything is going to change. Uh, presence is not enough. We actually uh, have to gain the power to force change. If we settle for presence, attention, um, instead of real power, then we don't get the change. And the system we have- I love this so much. Just continues to go on, right? Yes. Yes. Um, almost every candidate, including yourself, has a platform on race. Uh, the policies they say they will implement. But today, rather than talking about policy um, alone, I also want to talk about power. How are you going to be part of building the power we need to actually make those policy promises real, to make racial justice real, to move the country to a place in which anti-black racism um, doesn't affect every aspect of life, and ultimately a way to make black people and all people more powerful. So thanks so much for being here, Mr. Yang. This podcast is less about what candidates' racial justice policy positions are and much more about how they plan to make racial justice a reality once in office. But first, I want to ask you about your past experiences and how they've informed your work. I'm the son of immigrants. My parents met as graduate students in California. I was born in upstate New York, and I was one of the only non-white kids in my town. Uh, I was the skinny, nerdy Asian kid that you might remember from the 80s movies. <laughs> they might have, though the skinny Asian kid would never have been the focus of the movie. You just might have been wa walking around in the background. Uh, and so I was acutely aware of my own racial identity from when I was uh, very, very young. Uh, and I tried to fit in because that's what you do as a kid. And then when I got older and more mature, I realized that my experience was one thing uh, and that there were other experiences that blacks and Latinos and other racial groups went through that were significantly different and I would uh, say much, much more severe in terms of the power dynamics or the economic injustice uh, that people experienced from when they were very young or since before they were born, honestly. So that's been my experience personally. Uh, I 
believed in the American dream growing up, and my role as president is to make the American dream real for all of us, um, particularly people who right now are shut out. So when you think about the policies that you've put forward and you think about the platform, how um, have those experiences, sort of the recognition that there, um, that your own experiences created limitations, but there were other folks from other communities that had a whole different set of other experiences. Much more, yeah. And, and part of public policy, part of um, politics is about how do we figure out the path um, towards um, a more equitable, a more just um, place for all of us to live. So I'm interested in sort of how those experiences have translated into the platform that you that you have. Well, I said this at the LA debate where I was the only candidate of color, and you have to ask why that is. And then you look around and say, well, fewer than 5% of Americans donate to political campaigns. And people of color have less disposable income and are thus much less likely to donate to political campaigns. So you wind up with a massive differential in terms of sources of financial resources for candidates, and then that influences who winds up on the debate stage. So the big challenge to me is to balance out the economic power, and there's no real way to do that except to get a hold of the government and rewrite the rules of the 21st century economy to work for people. And certainly, African Americans have it much worse uh, than other groups in terms of the economic base and access to opportunity. I said on the debate stage that the net worth of an African American household is only 10% that of a white household. And unfortunately, that's going to get worse, not better. Uh, one study showed that median black household net worth will go to zero by 2053. Uh, and that's only a few decades from now. And then you have to ask, well, how the heck is it going to go down, not up? And the reason it's projected to go down is that we're in the process of decimating the most common jobs in the economy, retail, call centers, manufacturing, uh, trucking. It's like an economic natural disaster. And we all know who suffers most in a natural disaster. It's black people, it's people of color who have lower levels of resources. So that's what we have to change well before this tidal wave uh, comes in and sweeps away many of our people and communities. So how do your policies, right, um, address those things, right? If you're, if you're, if we're talking about sort of where uh, black communities are in terms of the household wealth um, income, maybe you should talk a little bit about the freedom dividend. I'm interested in sort of how that addresses that and, and if you see that as connected to racial justice. Yeah, it, it's been championed by uh, Martin Luther King himself in his book, Chaos Our Community. He said, we should have a guaranteed minimum income for all Americans. This is the center of my entire campaign. I sat with Martin Luther King's son in Atlanta, and he said that this is what his father was fighting for when he was killed. And you have to ask yourself, how we celebrate Martin Luther King's birthday every year and then you never see anything about what he was fighting for when he died. It's always, I have a dream, and you have this image, and you, you see his face and hear his voice. But it doesn't say we should have a guaranteed minimum income for all Americans, which is what he was fighting for. So we somehow have lost our way. I mean, we ne maybe we never even had it when he was fighting for it. But over the last 50 years, in my mind, that message has been lost, and we need to put it front and center in American politics again, that as citizens and owners 
and shareholders of this country, we should all have a dividend on our economic progress. Yeah. And so I'm interested in how the dividend relates to things like the social safety net, which have been, you know, which um, deeply flawed have been aspects um, of the economic system that civil rights communities, black communities, brown communities have fought for for years to, at the very least, preserve. Um, and so part of, if I read it correctly, the freedom dividend would ask um, folks to make a choice in some places between the social safety net and um, the $1,000 a month freedom dividend. So I'm interested sort of how you think about that in relationship to sort of rewriting um, or at least powering forward um, what's, what's coming in terms of the you know, wealth and, and income inequality that you talked about earlier. Yeah, we need a game changer in American life. Uh, and one of the problems, there are a number of problems that we need to address. I would never be someone who would take anything away from anyone, particularly mm -hmm. if they're relying upon that for their month-to-month -month needs. So to me, the best path forward is to have this $1,000 a month dividend, which would be a game changer for families around the country. If you have two adults in your household, uh, including an 18-year-old child, that's $24,000 a year. I mean, this would transform tens of millions of American lives. It's the biggest thing that anyone's been talking about in American politics for generations. Uh, so what we do is we say it's universal, it's opt-in, and if you do opt-in, then you would be asked to forego benefits from certain existing programs. And what type of programs? Would it be food stamps, SNAP? I'm just, yeah. So it's the cash and cash equivalent program, so SNAP benefits. It is not anything healthcare related or anything housing related. And when I talk to people who are recipients of various government programs, they, one, dislike all of the requirements and constraints and hoop jumping. And number two, they live in fear of the fact that the benefits are going to be taken away in some way. And the darkest part about it is that there's this fear that if they work or do better or have a certain amount of income, then their benefits disappear. Uh, so this dividend is ours as a right of citizenship. There's no fear of it being taken away ever. You can do whatever you want with it. And if you decide to go out and get a part-time job and generate some additional income, uh, then that just stacks on top of it. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a, a large conversation that, you know, I think of it as large as a racial justice leader because five years ago I would have never imagined on the, even introduced on the debate stage of candidates talking about reparations and talking about the historical harms. And, 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 and as an organization that fights for racial justice, part of justice is not just the path forward but about dealing with um, where people are at as a result of harms that were done. I'm interested in whether it's reparations or, or something else, um, how do you account for the fact that everyone is not starting at the same place, not because of lack of innovation, lack of hard work, lack of the effort, legacy, because of the no. historical legacy of rules that still kind of exist today. If you look at certain industries, sure. domestic work, um, uh, tips or tip waiting, all of those things are still legacies of rules that were set up a it, certain it's way. It's baked into the fabric of yes. American life. Yeah. Uh, and I agree with you that this freedom dividend, which again uh, reflects what Martin Luther King was championing, and mm -hmm. even when he championed it, he did not say it, it's for any uh, group of Americans, it's for all Americans, yeah. and his claim, which I agree with, 
was that we need to make common cause with people who are economically shut out um, around the country and not let them um, pit us against each other because the poor have more in common with each other. Um, but to me, that's the first big step that we can take. That's a foundation. And then we'll be much better positioned to examine the legacy of slavery and look at reparations. I'm for the House bill to have that get studied mm -hmm. by the House. But to me, uh, the first thing would be this dividend that everyone gets, and then we can start to do more. Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested, right, um, in, in, in the proposals that you're putting on the table, they are definitely outside the box. They are um, things that um, have gotten a lot of attention and excitement because you are not a classic politician and you're not talking oh, like a classic politician. That. Yeah, no, it's a, definitely it's a compliment, especially um, here at Color of Change. Um, so there's, a, yeah. there's a woman in Detroit who said something that was the highest compliment I've gotten on this campaign so far. She said, blacks can smell bullshit a mile away. Uh -huh. Uh -huh and you don't smell. Yep. And that made me very happy. Yeah, well, you're, 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 you're deeply consistent and you say um, what you mean. And so I'm interested in, like, as this, what we're exploring this podcast is the how, right? Yes. Um, the what is really interested, but That's why I loved, how, I loved your yes, intro so yeah, much. How do we actually make that happen? Because yes. there are a ton of entrenched forces that have st stood in the way of any type of progress that we've wanted, and disrupting those entrenched forces. Um, yes. I'm interested in how, this, how you make yes. that happen. Yeah. Yeah, this is the topic. Yes. All right. So there are massive problems in our country, and to me, the way we can rewrite the rules is by getting people organized around the fact that we have this economic freight train that's going to come and run over people of every background. So artificial intelligence is about to leave the lab, and that's going to affect not just call center workers and truck drivers, but also radiologists and lawyers and accountants, because this software can do the work of many white-collar workers much faster and more efficiently. And it's already happening in some of the banks and some of the big financial industries because they're automating a lot of their work first. So if we can get everyone organized around the fact that, look, this technological fourth industrial revolution does not care about who you are, what your background is, what your education is, this is going to affect us all, then we have to try and humanize the economy as quickly as possible so that it works for each of us. And that's a message that can actually transcend party, it can transcend socioeconomic background, it can transcend, I believe, traditional racial divisions because you have white truck drivers and black call center workers on the same boat and everyone's gonna look up and say, okay, like maybe the Asian guy's right, like what the heck do we do about this? And then you can say, well, you know what makes the most sense is that we all deserve a dividend from the incredible technological progress that's coming out of Silicon Valley. Amazon, this trillion dollar tech company is paying zero in taxes. No one likes that. You go to a Republican and say, hey, what do you think about Amazon paying no taxes? They're like, what? <laughs> you yes, know? Yeah. They're not like, that's the American way. So we, we get a toll from the massive technological bounty. We put it into our hands. This is a case that everyone can get behind. So, uh, like, if you ask me, hey, Andrew, how do you feel about reparations? I feel very positively about reparations because I feel like there's this incredible, bone-deep, multi-generational legacy 
of slavery that we deal with every single day, and I don't deal with directly in the way that um, blacks and descendants of slaves do. But how are we going to get that done the way you're describing, like in real life? Yeah. In a country where only 15% of the population is black, and the vast majority of people who are in Congress would never contemplate the sort of economic make good that would come anywhere close to the, the legacy of slavery. Because we're talking about hundreds of billions, probably trillions of dollars. Yep, trillions of dollars. <laughs> right. Yes. So in order for us to even be able to get towards that conversation, the first we have to make the case that this is everyone's country, we're the people of this country, and we need to make ourselves all stronger, healthier, more whole. That move is trillions of dollars for everybody. And after that, if you get the boot off of people's throats, then we can have much more realistic conversations about how to, to try to uh, atone for and recognize the multi-generational legacy of slavery. But leading with reparations is going to, frankly, in my mind, um, just be, it's, uh, it's going to be an uphill battle, shall we say, um, and I'm putting that as like a dramatic understatement. Yeah. Like we're much better off trying to make a universal case that everyone can get behind. And when I'm making this universal case, I'm getting responses from the truckers in Ohio, the Trump voters in Iowa. Like people look up, why did people vote for Donald Trump? A whole range of reasons, like many of them not good at all. But some of them voted for Trump because they looked up and saw that DC is out of touch, doesn't care about the people, the Congress has been bought and sold, drained the swamp. Like some of these things are not all wrong. DC is out of touch, it's not answering to the people, it is bought and sold by the, the corporates. Like, so we need to try and make a case that many different types of Americans can get behind with the goal of improving our way of life. Our, and then we can make bigger steps towards racial justice in a very real and tangible way. But one of the things that I'm presenting to people is like, look, a thousand bucks a month is a game changer for everyone. And it begins to put more power and money into blacks' hands because you know what you need for black entrepreneurship to take root? black consumers to have more money. Mm -hmm. Like that's it, really. There is no other way. So what we have to do is we just have to take the money, put it into black people's hands, and then you will see businesses and entrepreneurship and creativity take root in black communities. There's no other way to do it. Mm -hmm. If you try and do it through the financial services industry, you know what's gonna happen. They're just gonna come in, they'll like sell a little bit here and there, but like the, like, the blacks won't have ownership of that. Yeah, but when we look at the like current structure, right? If no one likes that Amazon, right, pays, no taxes. pays no taxes, yeah. then why does it continue? And how do we fix that? Because it feels like it's, or it doesn't feel like it is going the way of more and more um, entities not having to pay taxes or those that don't have to pay taxes just continuing to get larger. Yeah, exactly. This yes. is the winner-take-all economy. Yes. This is how you wind up with projections that the average black household net worth will be zero by 2053. Mm -hmm. Is that if you have the winner-take-all economy, you have more and more of the wealth getting soaked up by a smaller and smaller slice of companies and individuals. That's where we are. And we have to come together and say, that's not right. 
Jeff Bezos is worth $115 billion post-divorce. His company should not be paying zero in taxes. Uh, and everyone can get behind that case because that's how we prevent the economic tidal wave. And there's no other way, and this is one of the frustrations I have, Rashad. It's like I'm a numbers guy. I've looked at it. Um, there is no way to do this without getting to the top of government and just putting money into people's hands. Mm -hmm. Everything else we're talking about is a giant waste of time. Um, and like, in, like it, it, it's why I'm running for president. There is no other way. So you've talked um, a little bit about identity politics and the role that identity politics um, has played and, and, and been critical of identity politics. I'm interested, though, in, in what are the motivated vehicles that you feel exist to actually get people to turn out? Because when I look at the big pieces of social change that have happened over the last several decades in this country, whether it's on racial justice, gender justice, um, LGBT equality, they have been driven, empowered by people who wanted to be more visible, wanted to be heard and counted, um, regardless of whether they were in the majority, the minority, privileged or vulnerable. And so I am interested in, in how you think about working with movements um, and how you think about the role of identity, given that the Democratic Party is such, um, owes such a debt to any power they have to a set of really clear identity groups. I'm uh, all for people being motivated uh, to be seen and heard. I'm very proud of my own heritage. Uh, as an Asian American, I'm very proud to be the first Asian American man to run for president as a Democrat. One of the things I, I would suggest to folks is that we need to try and make things better in ways that are going to help people in our own communities, but also and allow us to make common cause with people outside of it, particularly if you're starting from a base where you can't get things done because you don't have majority control of, legisl of the legislators. So I'm going to use women as an example. Um, women ought to have much more power in our society than they do, but they do not. Uh, and you have the Democratic Party saying, hey, we're going to stand up for women, which is a very positive thing. But one of the things I say to women is, look, like you have to think bigger about the kind of changes that will recognize the uncompensated and unrecognized work that happens in our families and communities every day, which we know women do the vast majority of. And so if you're going into companies and saying, hey, companies, like you need to elevate women to executive positions, I'm for that. But that misses the situation that many women are in, at like as a waitress at the diner or the stay-at-home mom or someone taking care of, um, of an aging relative. Like we have to try and make it right for them too. Yeah. And so uh, there's like a, a way that we can help improve people's lives without focusing on issues that, in my mind, will serve more to home in on something that a particular group of people may care about in a way um, that doesn't universalize but, the but, case. But for the 55-year-old black woman who, yeah. who represents the core of the Democratic base, right? When she turns out in high numbers, that's when Democrats win. Yes. Um, when she's been told we have to give a large message to everyone by multiple Democrats over the years. And that oftentimes means setting aside her issues after the Democrat gets elected to office, right? I'm not, for like, that. I'm not for that yes, at all. And so, and so I'm interested in what, <laughs> what you, yeah, I'm interested in what you say to that voter, to, to that core piece of the base who um, has heard a message sometimes that 
Um, we need to talk to everybody, but what that means so oftentimes I, is I, that the harms, I, uh, yeah. Yeah, I would never be someone who says like, oh, we have to talk to everybody yes. in that way. Like, I would want to go to that 55-year-old African-American woman and say, okay, like, what do we need to do to make you feel better about your kids' lives, potentially your grandkids' lives? Like, what can we do to try and balance that out? Um, and then we need to try and solve that problem. To me, actually, and this is the trap, Rashad, is that it's what you opened with and why I loved your opening so much, is that people confuse representation with getting shit done. Absolutely. And so we just need to get it done. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how we get it done. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't matter who gets it done. Yeah. <laughs> we just need yes. to look at it and yeah. say, like, let's do the thing. Like that 55-year-old African-American woman, you know, if it, she's looking at her kids and saying, like, why do things seem even worse for my kids than they were when I was growing up? Because they are worse for her kids. Yeah. And so that's what we have to get done. We have to actually try and improve the way of life for her kids and potentially her grandkids. If you were born in the 40s in this country, which I guess if you're 55, you're still a little bit younger than that, but there's a 93% chance you're gonna be better off than your parents in the United States. If you were born in the 1990s, you're down to a 50-50 shot and it's declining fast. Yeah. So that's the pain point for that person. The thing that the, the, the trap is that you somehow think that like, hey, if I take this 55-year-old black woman and like put her on stage and have her speak to the people, then problem solved. Well, Democrats have done that too much. I'm, I'm talking about what are the, what are the ways that we um, lean in, and I think, um, and yes, I, I, I really appreciate it, yes. I, I, I yes. love your attitude yes. so much. And so, and I'm so, the same way. And so my final question, my final oh, question. Oh, no. what do you mean final? Yeah, they're telling me we got to wrap. And oh, so no. this, is, um, this is a question I'm asking to all the candidates. It's one of my um, favorite questions because this election season and any election season, candidates come to black communities, come to our community and say, this is what we are going to do. This is how we're going to deal with disparities. This is how we're going to deal with challenges. And things get worse yes. every time. And, and I we all come. We yep. say the same stuff to you. We'd be like, yep. oh, vote, vote for yep. us, vote for us. Nothing changes. Yes. It just gets worse. And, and but, but part of but part of that, true. yeah, but part but part of that is that um, you know it also it also frames black communities only in a deficit, only in what candidates are going to do for us. And black people have contributed so much not only to this country but to our understanding of politics and to service and to progress. Yes. And so I'm interested, in, and I know. Um, um, our members and the people who will watch this and listen to this who um, may not know you well, yep. uh, may not know your full story well, are interested in knowing who are the black people um, who have contributed to your understanding of politics, of service, of where we should be heading and, um, and have helped frame or help you understand better about um, your own um, sense of service. One of the most impactful teachers I ever had was Ted Shaw, who's the head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Uh, and he was a real role model and inspiration for me. And he said to me in my early 20s, he said to me, um, he thought I was going to do something significant. And that meant a lot to, to me when I was in my early, early 20s. Uh, and for a long time, I thought he was wrong, actually. <laughs> well, that's self-reflective. You know, you never know. <laughs> yeah, so, so certainly uh, Ted had a big impact on me. Um, and even now, I mean, the centerpiece of my campaign is the message of Martin Luther King, whose uh, birthday we celebrate every year. We have to see his vision to fruition. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And I will say too, like, I don't care if it's me, uh, I just want to get the thing done. Um, and that's what, where we have to come together. When I said before, like politicians will come pay lip service over, over and over again. Um, we need to get past that stuff and focus on Dr. King's message of rewriting the rules of our economy to work for everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, if we do that, then we'll have an honest chance to really address racial injustice in a real way um, from a position of strength, what mm -hmm. you're talking about, instead of a position of um, what can you do for me and the community. I want to thank you for joining us. Every day at Color Change, we're focused on what does it mean to change the rules. Sometimes they're the written rules, sometimes they're the unwritten rules, but it always is focusing on building power and changing the rules. And part of um, part of that is that we need to be able to build power around new ideas. And I just want to thank you for coming and sharing and talking with thank, our members. Thank you, Rashad. And yeah. the great thing about this, or the terrible thing about this, is this is not my idea. It's not a new idea. It's Dr. King's idea. Mm -hmm. I regret that it takes the futurist Asian presidential candidate to drag it back into the mainstream. But we have to keep it here, and then we have to win on it. And then we have to take the trillions of dollars that went to the Wall Street banks 10 years ago and put it in your hands. And that is the only way we will have any shot at addressing the real racial injustice in this country. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you again to Mr. Yang for taking the time to talk with us today. Voting While Black is a national voter mobilization project based in black joy and building black power. We will kick off hundreds of brunches and other events in 2020 to bring black folks and our allies together to get informed about the election. Sign up and be the first to hear about the Voting While Black tour at votingwhileblack.com. Thank you to everyone who has helped make this show possible, including our own Whitney Bugs, Tanika Boyd, Valerie Brown, Jennifer Edwards, Kwesi Chapin, Devon Humiku, Vanessa Ross, Drew Daniels, and Alexis Grishaber. Additional thanks to Ryan Sensen. This show was produced by Color of Change Pack in partnership with Neon Hum and Black Robin Media. I'm Rashad Robinson. Thank you for listening.